Hello and welcome to Oxtails, the podcast that serves up stories about history and the foods that make it from the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigrether. And each week on Oxtails, we pick one paper from the symposium's long history and ask its author to come and share their story with you. We hope you've been enjoying season two so far. After today, there are two more episodes in season two with some really fantastic guests, which you can find out about, as well as other information about guests and the symposium on our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Also on our website, if you're able, you can make a donation to support this nonprofit educational podcast. Listeners in the UK can donate by texting OXTALES20 to 70085. That is O-X-T-A-L-E-S 20 to 70085. And you can always support us by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Now on to today's story. Pop quiz. What do the following three things have in common? A cannon, a vegetable peeler, and a microwave. If you said they're all pieces of technology, you'd be correct. But a lot of people wouldn't immediately say that. For many reasons, we tend to disregard the technological aspect of kitchen tools. And in doing so, we miss a lot of interesting stuff along the way. Today on Oxtails, our guest brings us on a few fascinating stories about how kitchen technology has both influenced us and reflected us as cooks and eaters throughout the centuries, sometimes with huge effects on our behavior, society, and even our bodies. Yeah, hi, I'm B. Wilson. I'm a food journalist. I'm a historian. I'm someone who came quite late to the idea that utensils were something interesting. And I'd always thought that people who kind of obsessed about tableware rather than the food itself were somehow missing the point. Part of what finally got B. interested in the deeper value of kitchen tools was an ongoing frustration she had with her own mother. My mother is very fond of fruit. She's always loved pears in particular. And one of her morning rituals was always to have um, toast, coffee, and then a pear. But it would drive me, sometimes an apple, it would drive me absolutely crazy because every day she'd get out um, quite a blunt table knife and just start kind of hacking away at this fruit and removing so much of the flesh of the fruit along with the skin. And I just used to look at it and think, well, she surely can't be enjoying that very much. So B began to buy her mother those nice, modern, ergonomic peelers as gifts, thinking that they would help solve the dreadful table knife problem. And then I would just notice when I went to stay with her, those peelers were staying stubbornly in the drawer and she was using her table knife as before. And it was clearly what she liked. And maybe it's partly, I say in the paper, you know, if you give someone a present that's really a lecture, then they don't really want to receive it. That's not a very nice kind of gift. I was making a comment on how she was living and maybe she didn't like that. But I think it was also just she was fond of doing things the way she'd always done them. That knife felt right in her hand. It gave her pleasure. She put the wasted amount of fruit into the compost, so maybe it wasn't really the end of the world. Clearly, the table knife that seemed a problem to be was not a problem for her mother. Her mother preferred her trusty, dull knife to all logical alternatives. In fact, it seemed to give her pleasure. And... Cooks are like that in general. The more I delved into the history of this subject, the more I found most cooks are actually conservative with a small c beings who like doing things the way they've always done them and are often very resistant to change, even if a better way is offered them. That said, cooking has changed a lot over the course of history. What we cook, who is doing the cooking, and what we cook it with looks different now than it did 100 years ago. 
Inspired by her mother's strong preference for the knife, B began to dig into the reasons why we change or don't change our use for kitchen technology. So, yes, when I began searching for other people who'd written about this subject, I found that kitchenware was just more or less missing from conventional histories of technology, partly because they were very male-focused. There was often an idea that technology really meant military technology, didn't mean domestic technology. We think technology means cannons or guns, and we forget it could be a pot or a pan or even a wooden spoon. What's particularly useful about seeing kitchen tools as technology rather than just utensils is that as technology, we're more ready to see how they get changed or adapted to reflect the human environment in which they're used. If we simply look at the vegetable peeler as a kitchen utensil, we might say, well, before the 1700s in France, there was no such thing as a peeler. After the 1700s, there was. And there have been small changes and improvements in design since, but that's that. A peeler is a peeler. However, if we see the peeler as a piece of human technology, perhaps we'd be more likely to see it as an innovation on the blade, which has genealogy tracing back to one of the oldest technologies in human history, the knife. Yes, so the knife is by far the oldest tool in the cook's armory. I mean, it goes much older than the management of fire. It goes back maybe one million years, maybe two million years. It depends which archaeologist you talk to. And the primary purpose of a knife is quite obvious. It's to be sharp. It's to do some of the work that our feeble teeth couldn't do because we're not lions. So we lack the ability to tear meat from a carcass using our own bodies. What's really interesting, I think, about the story of the knife is that it's not just this progressive story of knives getting sharper and sharper and more and more brilliant at cutting. It's partly that, obviously, as people move from stone to metal to better metals to better ways of making knives, we got more and more successful knives. But it's also the story of people being very frightened of the violence of the knife and finding different ways to tame it. For millennia, knife-toting humans would have used their blades for a variety of activities, which sometimes included self-protection and even murder. But since the knife was also a required piece of technology for eating, we have to cut down large things so that they fit in our mouths after all, we could not banish knives altogether. But what we did do was change the knife and how we used it to try to ensure that dining was as violence-free as possible. B tells two stories of how this happened at different points in history, in different parts of the world, and in rather different ways, in East Asia and in Western Europe. The West and the East took these two completely different approaches um, to the knife, which in each case summon up an entire culture of eating and cooking. So in China, you have this one amazing, great cleaver-like, but it's not a cleaver, knife called the two, which is totally multifunctional. It does everything um, from the most minute mincing of garlic up to the hacking of an entire chicken. Um, and the idea of Chinese cuisine is that all of the cutting is done away from the eaters in the kitchen. And then all you have to do as an eater is just pick up these morsels of food with chopsticks and eat it. And that's a way of making sure that the atmosphere at the dinner table is safe and free of violence. Chopsticks and cleaver-like knives have been around throughout East Asia for more than 2,000 years. In Western Europe, the solution is much more recent and much less clear. What we did in the West is kind of, it's almost weird. I mean, I find it a very passive-aggressive 
thing in a way, which is that over the course of centuries, we decided on purpose to make knives that did a worse job of cooking, namely the table knife. You know the table knife. What we call a butter knife is a table knife with an even more rounded tip. These knives were made to look ostentatiously harmless and were introduced rather recently. Until around the 17th century, give or take, um, I mean, actually 18th century, one of the most basic human objects um, that everyone would own, just like everyone would own a toothbrush today, was your own personal knife. And you would just carry around this sharp knife with you and you'd attach it to a belt. And people just took it for granted that you know, the meal was served and you got your own knife out. But of course, this tended to cause anxiety at the dinner table. So various customs of extreme politesse emerged that were an attempt to mitigate knife violence. I mean, the basic foundation of all table manners is this idea that the person sitting next to you could suddenly pull their knife on you. I mean, if, if things got nasty, you get into an argument over dinner, you don't want to get stabbed. But frankly, table manners weren't quite enough. And so, as B said, in the 18th century, there was a revolution in cutlery. The fork was introduced, the sharp personal knife was replaced by the dull table knife. So while in the East they solved the problem of murder at the dinner table by making it so that one person did all the chopping in a different room and diners ate with chopsticks, in the West, they were now left with a strange set of theatrically polite behaviors and much less functional eating utensils. But the story of the knife doesn't stop here. B thinks there's reason to believe that when we stopped using our own sharp knives to eat and started using a knife and fork or chopstick, it actually changed the way some of our body parts fit together, namely our jaws. This she discovered by reading the work of a man whose name was, rather appropriately for an anthropologist who studied teeth, C. Loring Brace. And he started looking at the human overbite, which refers to the fact that if you think of an ape's teeth, they fit together in an edge-to-edge bite. Um, they clash against each other. Whereas for humans, the top layer of our teeth fits over the bottom layer like a lid on a box. The prevailing assumption had always been that our uniquely human overbite was probably the result of the transition to agriculture, when we'd started eating more soft cooked foods around 10,000 years ago. But what Brace found was that actually there were people with the edge-to-edge bite um, from existing skulls he could find much, much more recently. He found them as recently as 200 years ago. So he thought it can't therefore be a product of Darwinian evolution. That's just way too recent for that. Rather, he decided it would must be to do with the way that people started chopping food into tiny fragments with a knife and fork and then popping it into their mouth. So his thought was that in the years before that, most people ate in a rather primitive way, which he describes as stuff and cut, where you take something like a chewy piece of salami or a hard piece of cheese and clamp it between your teeth. And then you slice off the part you weren't going to eat with your knife probably trying to be careful not to cut off your nose in the process. And his thought was that if you were regularly clamping food in that way, rather than cutting it first, that your teeth would um, themselves be prevented from fully growing, whereas if you stop doing that, then they grow into the full overbite. B is careful to highlight that Brace's theory, like much in anthropology, is just that, a theory. And it doesn't account for people who live in parts of the world where dining utensils aren't used in favor of other cooking and eating technologies. But there is one more morsel of evidence from Brace's research that makes B think he still might be onto something. We don't know totally for sure that Brace is right, 
But I'd been reading as many of his papers as I could find. And then I found this one where he described the situation in China. And this, to me, is the clincher, which is that in China, the overbite emerges 900 years earlier. And Brace's explanation is that it coincides with the adoption of chopsticks, which went along with food being cut into tiny morsels before it arrived at table. So this differing attitude to knives in the East and West, which seems in some ways something quite trivial, it actually had this graphic impact on the alignment of our jaws. Regardless of whether knives really did change our jaws or not, what we know is that kitchen technology has the potential not only to reflect changes in the humans that are using it, but to be a force of change itself. So let's return to the vegetable peeler and regard it with the same appreciation as we just have its ancestor, the knife, and see how the plot continues to thicken. In some ways, it's no different from an older one stone cutting tool with somebody hacking away at a piece of animal flesh. And in another way, it's totally and utterly different. The particular peelers that Bee had been failing to give her mother were called OXO Good Grips peelers. OXO Good Grips peelers look mostly like a regular peeler, with a stainless steel blade that swivels to conform to the contours of whatever thing you're peeling. What makes these peelers arguably very different from other vegetable peelers is their handle. Why does the handle set them apart? For years, peeling vegetables would have been one of the most annoying jobs in the kitchen because, okay, you could have done it with a paring knife if you're very skilled, but most of the tools specifically designed for peeling were really annoying in one way or another. And there was a swivel action metal peeler in France which had a brilliant blade, but the problem was that the waffled chrome handle would stab into your hand as you peeled. So people who are trying to prepare mashed potatoes for some big family dinner might end up with peeler-induced blisters. But in 1989, the Good Grips peeler put an end to peeler-induced blisters. And it was only because one of the founders of OXO realized that his wife was having trouble peeling potatoes with her arthritis. And as so often in kitchenware design breakthroughs, he had this brilliant piece of lateral thinking, which is that instead of focusing on the blade, which you would think was the key piece of the peeler, he focused on the handle and making it as comfortable and efficient as possible. It took 200-some-odd years for someone to address the problem of the uncomfortable peeler handle and finally make peelers an elegant piece of technology. And you might say, well, so what? Things take time to develop. But look a little more closely, and as always, technology tells stories. What does the sudden accommodation for comfort in a kitchen tool tell us about who is doing the cooking, and why? And I hadn't really thought before the extent to which tools that actually made the cook's life easier. The very phrase, labour-saving, doesn't enter the language until 1791. But it doesn't begin to get applied to kitchen tools until much later than that, even. And I think it's the mid-19th century. And it's partly this thought, which to me is rather a chilling one, that there was very little interest in saving labour when the labour in the kitchen was not your own. And then if you think back for what cooking would have been for most cooks in history, it was drudgery. It was the art of fire management. It was sooty. It was hot. And it was above all rather thankless because it was a task done either by women or servants. Which is still true in a lot of places, by the way. Cooking is still non-optional for so many women in a lot of the developing world and they're producing these wonderful meals. It's preventative medicine for the people who are eating it three times a day. 
but it comes at a cost. So domestic workers, enslaved people, and women throughout history were not the ones who generally had the power to demand more comfortable working conditions or labor-saving tools. This is illustrated quite shockingly by a recipe for pancakes that B found in a French household advice book from the 14th century. Which says the eggs have to be beaten long enough to weary one person or two. Which just summons up this world where you have an array of kind of human robots, essentially. And when you've completely destroyed one person's arm muscles with beating, never mind, here's another human being that you can just use. And I'm laughing. It's not funny. It's not funny if you think of the extent of suffering that cooking has caused and still causes many cooks around the world. I mean, cooking is still... By the mid-19th century, the first cooking devices touted as labor-saving began cropping up. Things like mechanical egg beaters. And B says that there were two central reasons why this happened at this particular time. There was a big change, I would say, that happened in kitchenware between about 1850 and 1900. And these two things happen at once. You, on the supply side, as you say, there was a sudden influx of much cheaper metal. So people could very easily just rustle up these small handheld tools, mostly made out of things like tin. But on the other hand, on the demand side, suddenly it was partly that middle class households were many of them without servants for the first time or had fewer servants than in the past. So people were suddenly starting to think that maybe it might be a good idea to make cooking into a slightly easier thing. Since then, the toll of physical labor on our bodies is the thing that modern industry has sought to eliminate, reduce, or failing that, outsource. The other side of all of this, of course is that since scratch cooking has never been more optional, for an increasing number of cooks today, cooking has become a creative, leisure activity. To illustrate, enter our final piece of kitchen technology of the day, the mortar and pestle. Whereas the knife has had millennia of evolution, which you could say is still ongoing, as with the vegetable peeler, the mortar and pestle is a piece of technology that seems to have been figured out early on and hasn't changed much since. A mortar and pestle has two parts a dish-shaped mortar, and a rod-shaped pestle, typically made of stone, that together are used to grind or crush foods and spices. Variations on this object have been found all around the world for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, I have a um, kind of Thai granite pestle mortar that I know a lot of people in the UK have. I think it looks almost identical to something that could be from Mesopotamia, you know, 10,000 years ago, and yet its meaning is totally and utterly different because it's become a kind of lovely leisure object. I use it for fun when I feel like making pesto, and I don't have to use my pesto mortar. I could use my handheld blender, I could use my electric food processor, or I could just buy some pesto. But I use it because I want to kind of relish that wonderful kitchen perfume of the basil leaves underneath the grinding um, tool and the kind of waxy feeling of the pine nuts. And it's, it's textural, it's joy. Whereas for most of human history, the pestle mortar was the opposite of joy. It was pain. It was women getting arthritis in their shoulders because they were having to spend so many hours grinding grain just to get enough basic calories to survive. Cooking and eating for pleasure is perhaps one of the biggest new forces influencing culinary technology today. Think of the at-home sous-vide circulators widely available now. Those are quite the opposite of labor-saving. Bee's mortar and pestle is kind of like her mother's dull table knife. It may not be the most effective way to get the job done, but for her, it brings her the most pleasure. As Bee told us back in the beginning of the story, 
Cooks are a sentimental, conservative bunch. And while they like technology to work for them, it seems they don't want to be told what to do. At first, this may seem to fly in the face of what technology is, namely progress. But if technology simply means something to enhance human use, then surely both of our stories today are examples of technology unfolding, like it always has. Old tools like the mortar and pestle can experience innovation when they satisfy a new need like leisure. And new tools like the oxo peeler can satisfy the age-old need of getting food on the table without hurting ourselves in the process. So it's as always with kitchen technologies, there's this kind of trade-off between the romance of cooking, the romance of the artisan, and efficiency. And sometimes, I mean, actually, almost all the time in our lives now, efficiency has gone too far and we've allowed cooking to be farmed out to these big multinational corporations who now have a kind of stranglehold on our food and on our palates. So I think it's absolutely right that we should start taking raw ingredients back into our own hands and into our own kitchens. But if we do that with a bit of pragmatism and a few machines along the way, that seems like a good thing too. So the next time you go to your drawer and take out your favorite knife or peeler, or go to crush something with your trusty pestle and mortar, remember, you aren't just throwing a meal together. You're taking part in the timeless human act of getting something done with a little help from technology. I think that's a rather appealing ending, don't you? Thanks for tuning into Oxtails today. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And huge thanks to our guest today, B. Wilson. You can find a link to her symposium paper, Sporks, Pestles, and Peelers, Why Kitchen Technology Matters, from the 2013 Symposium Proceedings at oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash proceedings slash downloads. Follow B on social media at Kitchen B and look out for her newest book, The Way We Eat Now, wherever you buy books. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigrether, and mixed by Thomas Krauss. Editorial oversight is provided by Naomi Duguid and Fiona Sinclair. Our theme music is by Thomas Krauss. Oxtails is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Food Symposium. If you like what we're doing and you want to help us make Season 3 a reality, please consider making a donation to our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Listeners in the UK can also donate £20 by texting the word OXTALES20 to 70085. That is O-X-T-A-L-E-S 20 to 70085. Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendening, Thomas Krauss, Urider, and Abing. Sounds accessed from freesound.org and archive.org. To learn more about the Oxford Symposium, that website again is oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Follow us on Twitter, at Oxford Food Simp, and Instagram, at Oxford Food Symposium. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to us and give us a good review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Thanks so much, and we'll be back next week with some more Oxtails.